You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. The Boss Hog of Liberty podcast is the latest hit on the We Are Libertarians Network. Each week, Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis explore life in Henry County, Indiana. It's a show about our circle of friends, public officials, and our experiences. 80% observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Hey there, Liberty lovers. This is Mark Clare of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to bring you great conversations about the ideas of liberty three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check us out at lionsofliberty.com. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe on Patreon at wearelibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of bonus content and free stuff. We're always taking your questions and comments via email at editor at wearelibertarians.com. And please join our Facebook groups and Discord, which you can find at wearelibertarians.com. Please be warned that this show is raw, unedited, and authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive, although probably not today. I am here by myself in the studio. Uh, I am going to talk to Bill Ottman of Minds.com here in a little bit, but uh, I am further reflecting on the social media crisis. Maybe it's a personal crisis, but I have gotten letters from several of you who have listened to the past few shows and said, you know, I'm really rethinking my personal habits digitally, and I want to thank you for bringing this to our attention, and I appreciate those letters. I always love getting feedback from you guys, editor at wearelibertarians.com, and I think it is a really important discussion that we need to have on our 
how, how it's affecting our brains. You know, we've talked in the program for years. I can, I can remember Greg and I going back and doing an episode maybe two years ago where it was he and I talking about our inability to read because of smartphones and technology. And I really didn't give it much thought at that time, but I have started to really kind of think about my social social usage. Partly started with some of the Facebook uh, Russia stuff. The great irony, <laughs> it must suck to be Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Google, um, it, because all this Russia stuff got started, and that started to make people think, hmm, should I really be using this this much? Should I really be on Facebook two out of every five minutes? Which is an actual stat. I mean, if you're on Facebook, you're on that app two out of every five minutes, which is astounding. And I I look at my own habits and my addiction to technology, it was a factor in my divorce, um, although not the, the main factor, but it was definitely a factor. It was one of her main complaints that I was... I was more engaged in technology than I was with her. I will sit, you know, I should be reading all these books. I have 125 library books about all these uh, amazing subjects sitting under my table. I'm sitting in front of hundreds of books that I own. I'm I'm sitting in front of a stack of magazines and news articles that I want to read you and audiobooks and podcasts and all this great information that I want to consume, and yet I will lay in bed and just scroll through my Instagram feed all night or Twitter or, you know, and uh, it's not even about engaging. And part of it, I think, is because I live alone and so and I'm such a social creature that I enjoy engaging with friends at night. There's nothing wrong with that, but I've found that my behavior personally is not uh, – there's no moderation there, and so I've I've really been working this year on trying to moderate. But it's very tough. It's almost as tough as quitting cigarettes, which I've not done. But uh, <laughs> but I would say that trying to clean up my digital habits has the same uh, let's see pull on my on my will <laughs> as trying to eat right and exercise. You know, uh, this is what's good for me is reading. What's good for me is going to the gym. What's good for me is eating a proper way. What I want to do is go to Steak and Shake and uh, Panda Express every night. What I want to do is not go to the gym and play Mario Kart. What I want to do is sit on my phone and scroll through this news feed as opposed to reading a book that will better prep me for the show. So I I've, I can I cannot imagine how many of you out there aren't going, wow, yeah, I really love my smartphone. I mean, there's studies that have shown that people would rather take their smartphone than their spouse to a desert island. <laughs> like, do you love your smartphone more than your spouse and children? And the smartphone almost, if not sometimes, wins. Which I get it. I mean, I've been married. I, I totally understand. So, I... I think there there needs to be a real discussion on our digital habits. It started with the Russia stuff, and then I read this book, Bored and Brilliant, which I highly recommend. It's from the uh, the creator of a podcast called Note to Self, and it's a really interesting podcast about human interaction with technology, personal technology. I uh, highly recommend that podcast and, and checking that out. And she basically writes the importance of being bored on the human mind. 
and the uh, the need to kind of step away and disconnect and let your brain refresh because there's two modes of thinking. There is the linear thinking that you apply to problem solving. So you go to work and you're, you know, for me, I go to, I get to work, I'm immediately engaging with with coworkers, I'm sitting down, answering emails, doing customer service, fixing problems for people, taking these multiple steps to get this piece of content scheduled and I need to work on this project and get this done. And then there's the slower thinking which is the uh, the time when you're just kind of in the shower or you're on the treadmill at the gym or you're hanging out by the pool without a device or you're driving to work and you have those deeper that you have that time to let your brain kind of just expand and and not be engaged and that's when you come up with the great ideas. And I find that I don't have enough time uh, in that mode of thinking because I spend so much of my day in that engaged portion, that linear thinking, that I don't get to sort of the more relaxed state. And it's really important for your brain to have that time to kind of just disconnect from everything. And the smartphone technologies and apps that we use employ... You got to do this to get this. You got to do this to get this reaction. You got to do this to get that reaction. So it's almost like you're a mouse who is in a cage and you have to hit a button to get a dopamine reward, uh, which a lot of these engineers are coming out and saying that's exactly how it works. Um, so this is from The Guardian on 3-27-2018, and the title is, Our Minds Can Be Hijacked, The Tech Insiders Who Fear a Smartphone Dystopia. It's a very... Th- uh, terrifying <laughs> headline. So I'm, I'm not going to read all this because it's a very long article, but it's a very interesting article. And I think there are some points. This is more of an informational podcast where I just want you to think about your relationship to technology. Uh, and I say that as someone who depends on you being engaged with technology. You know, with We Are Libertarians, my day job, my uh, mar- side marketing business, the platform building business that I'm planning out, it it depends on you being on these platforms or engaged with technologies that support what I do for a living. But I also don't want to live in the world that we seem to be living in, this sort of like awful, ruled by our baser emotions uh, world that, that kind of has crept up that we'll get into a little bit more. But uh, you know, really the goal of We Are Libertarians is how can you live a better life? How can you improve yourself so we can improve society? Because I think you have to start improving your life, yourself, to start improving society. It's easy for us to sit there and point out all the other things that other people do that are wrong, but you can't control that. And the, the desire to control that is really why we have such a big government. So Let's get on with this article and start thinking about some of this stuff. I'm not going to draw a lot of conclusions. I haven't been drawing a lot of conclusions because I'm sort of on this journey with you, and I just want to share with some with you some of the stuff that I'm thinking about and watching and listening to on this particular subject because I think it's important. Justin Rosenstein had tweaked his laptop's operating system to block Reddit, ban himself from Snapchat, when he compares, which he compares to heroin, and imposed limits on his use of Facebook. But even that wasn't enough. In August, the 34-year-old tech executive took a more radical step to restrict his use of social media and other addictive technologies. 
Rosenstein purchased a new iPhone and instructed his assistant to set up a parental control to prevent him from downloading any apps. He was particularly aware of the allure of Facebook likes, which he describes as bright dings of pseudo-pleasure that can be as hollow as they are seductive. And Rosenstein should know. He was the Facebook engineer who created the like button in the first place. It is very common, Rosenstein says, for humans to develop things with the best of intentions and for them to have unintended negative consequences. Rosenstein, who also helps create GChat during a stint at Google, now leads a San Francisco-based company that improves productivity, appears most concerned about the psychological effects on people who research shows, touch, swipe, and tap their phones 2,617 times a day. That is crazy. (laughs) That is a big number. Um, So he goes on to worry about democracy being rendered obsolete. Um, So there's this... When you're engaging with this conversation and you're consuming stuff about the effect of technology, it always gets back to the Russia question. And within these articles, you always find the slight digs at capitalism and the slight digs at democracy being eroded and Donald Trump won and this is part of the problem. And so I would say that you really have to be careful not to let yourself slide into uh, just buying wholesale into a subtle left argument because there is a, there is a bit of propaganda here by elevating – well, not elevating. I mean this Rosenstein guy is a legit source of information. I mean he understands the technology better than you and I do. But there's always – as you see in this article and others that I've read – there's always this subtle, well, this is just how capitalism works. This is the evil of capitalism. They are manipulating you, and we need the government to regulate and protect us from these bad actors, you know, bad actors like Donald Trump and all the people that got him elected by manipulating you into believing that Donald Trump is a more viable option than Hillary Clinton, who's a victim of all of this evil technology. I find that thread throughout all of these articles, and that isn't un- that isn't uh, a convincing argument to me. She was a crappy candidate <laughs> in all of these uh, all of these midterm elections. These, some of these candidates are, are getting twenty points higher vote totals than Hillary Clinton did, uh, and you see this in like the wasted vote, like in this Pennsylvania election, the wasted vote argument. With the Libertarian Party candidate, had he not been in the race, the Republican would have won. Well, that's not true because like 30% of Republicans just didn't show up to vote for the guy because he was a bad candidate. So the the antidote to the wasted vote argument is a lot of times voter turnout and the inspiration of the base to turn out for a candidate. So be on the lookout for some of these more subtle things because this this manipulation is not a reason why Donald Trump won. It is partially. But Hillary Clinton was outspending on these tech ads like 10 to 1 on Donald Trump. It was a massive amount. She spent like $2 billion on social ads, and it didn't work. And, you know, the Russians spending $100,000 supposedly somehow outmanipulated the $2 billion that the Democrats spent. And that just doesn't make sense. So if you're going to argue that the technology 
is so persuasive that it's going to undermine democracy, which is code for Democrats winning and Republicans losing, then you would think that Hillary Clinton would have had a much more – she would be much more guilty of manipulating you and mind control by spending $2 billion versus $100,000 by Russians. And yet somehow their tiny fraction of these 3,000 ads swung the election of Wisconsin to Donald Trump. It just doesn't hold water. And you have to be really careful when you read this stuff because they don't provide that context. You've got to have the context of, of all of this stuff. So there are legitimate things within these articles that play into our politics and how things are affected. Um, you know, when they say things like democracy may be threatened, well, I don't believe that at all. I think what social media does is it shows democracy as it is. We have a republic for a reason because our founding fathers understood what happened in places like Rome. In Rome, you had pure democracy in many ways where the crowd standing outside of the Senate could sway things in a very significant way. And you could you could break down norms and laws very easily and have this wild swing back and forth. And the House was supposed to represent that wild swing and the Senate was supposed to be the cooler. So the way that that by came uh, by cameral house the the by the two chambers <laughs> ah, I wish I were smarter the two chambers were set up to offset democracy the three branches were off to offset democracy we were supposed to elect wise and thoughtful people to offset democracy because democracy is ruled by the mob. It is the David Hoggs of the world who haven't put any thought but yet have all this emotion. Uh, it's to, to take them out of the equation. Yes, you get a voice, and yes, you can be elected a representative, but your temporary emotional outbursts do not make policy. So when I look at social media, I see democracy as in action. I see it as the base desires of human beings trying to rule others through their own emotions without higher thought engaged. So democracy is not being threatened by social media. You're experiencing democracy. <laughs> and if you don't like it, then you really should become a Republican and not a, a Democrat in the small d and small r sense. So not in the political party sense, but you should support a Republican government that's slower because you don't like the fact that the mob is ruling, as opposed to the pronouncements of democracy is threatened because Republicans keep winning and Democrats keep losing, and how can this be? Uh, so you, you, you're seeing mob rule, you're seeing democracy in action. We don't have a democracy for that reason, because it is, it, it is a threat to freedom. It is a threat to liberty. What you're experiencing through this gun debate is democracy, and it is what the Founding Fathers uh, designed our system to prevent. It is to be slow, to protect rights, not to allow the passions of the times to erode those rights. And it is up to every generation to define liberty and teach it to their fellow individuals. That's the, the tree being watered with the blood of patriots or the blood of tyrants, uh, it is a republic if you can keep it. This is what they were referring to. It is our job to define liberty and freedom and enact that and remind every generation of what that means. 
and we, we are doing a poor job of that. Um, so back to this article. In 2007, Rosenstein was one of a small group of Facebook employees who decided to create a path of least resistance, a single click, to send little bits of positivity across the platform. Facebook's like feature, Rosenstein says, was wildly successful. Engagement soared as people enjoyed this feature, the short-term boost that they got from receiving social affirmation. While Facebook harvested valuable data on the preferences of users that could be sold to advertisers, the idea was soon copied by Twitter with its heart-shaped likes, or favorites, Instagram, and countless other apps and websites. Uh, it is... It is revealing that many of these younger technologists are weaning themselves off of their own products, sending their children to elite Silicon Valley schools where iPhones, iPads, and even laptops are banned. They appear to be abiding by Biggie Smalls' lyric from their own youth about the perils of dealing crack cocaine. Never get high on your own supply. So they then go on to talk to Nir Ayal. Ayal, 39, the author of Hooked, How to Build a Habit-Forming Product, is a tech industry speaker, and he studies how silicon giants operate. He, he says, the technologies we use have turned into compulsions. It's not full-fledged addictions. It's the impulse to check a message notification. It's, to, it's the pull to visit YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter for just a few minutes, only to find yourself still tapping and scrolling an hour later. None of this is an accident. It's all just designed the way it was intended. He explains the subtle psychological tricks that can be used to make people develop habits such as varying the rewards people receive to create a craving or exploiting negative emotions that can act as triggers. Feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensations. Now, he has started to advocate for social responsibility, saying they should be careful not to abuse persuasive design and be wary of crossing the line into coercion. And I think that's an important point. Uh, as libertarians, we are against coercion and fraud and lying and murder and anything that violates what's called the non-aggression principle. You're, you're free to do whatever you like as long as you don't infringe upon my rights. And there, there is a bit of coercion that goes on here, and it is a voluntary coercion. We allow ourselves to get into the system and then to be controlled by the system. So it is, it is not a, f- a force, uh, which, but it, because it's not voluntary, it can be easily destroyed. And I think we're going to see it uh, happen soon, and I'll explain that in a bit. And... There, Ben Shapiro actually on his podcast this week made an argument for fraud uh, that some of these companies are committing fraud. When you say that you are going to treat everyone equally and fairly and your terms of service say one thing, but then you continually do the opposite and you are biased and you switch from moving from a just a, a, a base a platform like AT&T or Comcast or your internet carrier or your radio car- carrier. Like there's a difference between the radio signal and the radio program. Uh, are you a platform that is agnostic to what is on the platform? Well, then you get protection under Section 230 where things like copyright infringement. You, If you are covered under Section 230 of U.S. Code, 
if you post a copyright photo on your Facebook page, Facebook is not liable for that copyright infringement. They are not held liable and accountable for third-party content, user-generated content. But once you start getting into the idea that you're a publisher and you are deciding what people do and don't see, are you still covered by Section 230? Because you can't classify yourself as an agnostic platform and then switch yourself to a publisher. Because then, as a publisher, you are held accountable for what people do and don't do on your platform. So, for instance, uh, 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 Rare, which was a Cox Media outlet run by the Southern, Southern Avenger, Jack Hunter, formerly of the Rand Paul campaign, he was running a website called Rare for them, Rare Liberty, and they just announced that they're shutting down. Well, Rare, as pointed out by this Western journalism study that we talked about in a previous episode, was the hardest hit uh, after the the IJR website uh, was the second hardest hit by the Facebook algorithm change over the last few months, you know, where liberal sites gained 2% of traction and conservative sites saw a 24% drop in traction, and Rare is now out of business. And so the censorship of the Facebook platforms that shut off their organic growth put them out of business. So if you are controlling where the organic growth goes, are you not a publisher? Are you not making decisions on what people see? You know, and they and they say that, well, straight news, ideologically devoid news, uh, it it does better. People would rather see that than opinion based news. Well, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Otherwise, why would Fox News and MSNBC being C- beat CNN in the ratings? Nobody watches ABC Nightly News. Uh, they watch Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow. They don't. They don't like straight news. They want opinion-based news. So they're now getting into the business of deciding thought and becoming publishers. So that means that you are in the business of coercion and uh, manipulation, and and basically you've defrauded people like me who participated in your platform, encouraged people to use your platform under the idea that I had the equal opportunity of being shown to users as the Young Turks did. Well, that's not true, and you're lying in the pu- in the press and in your and pu- your public statements, saying otherwise. So that's a real problem. Uh, so Rosenstein, uh, not Rosenstein. Uh, so Ayal said he's defensive the te- of the techniques he teaches about hooking people on platforms, and dismisses people who say they're like addictions to drugs. We're not freebasing Facebook and injecting Instagram here. He flashed up a slide of a a shelf filled with sugary baked goods. Just as we wouldn't blame the baker for making such delicious treats, we can't blame tech makers for making their products so good we want to use them. Of course, that's what tech companies will do. And frankly, do we want it any other way? And I agree with him. It is about personal responsibility and it is about the free market for us to decide what we want and what we do not want in these technologies. Uh, So... Uh, you know, as libertarians, we want to protect their right to you to set up their business model as they see fit, uh, and it is our responsibility to determine if we want to engage with these surveillance capitalism corporations, uh, as we've been talking about. Uh, without irony, I all finished his talk with some personal tips for resisting the lure of technology. He uses a Chrome extension called DF YouTube 
which scrubs out a lot of those external triggers. Uh, he, <laughs> I also found something. I, I downloaded DF YouTube, and it basically does. It just shows you the video. Really cool extension. I also downloaded something called Newsfeed Eradicator, and it completely gets rid of the newsfeed. You can still use all, like for me, I manage several Facebook pages. And so it's it's just an impossibility for me as a social media manager and marketer to not use Facebook. I've got to be there. I've got to use this platform. But this newsfeed is, feed eradicator eradicated my newsfeed. And I just see like a nice little quote at the bottom. But I can still go to pages and manage pages and use Messenger. So that was a cool little extension. Um, so... He confided the lengths he goes to protect his own family, and uh, he says, we're not powerless, we're in control. Not according to Tristan Harris, a 33-year-old former Google employee turned vocal critic of the tech industry. All of us are jacked into this system. All our minds can be hijacked. Our choices are not as free as we think they are. Harris, who has been branded as the closest thing to Silicon Valley, insists that billions of people have little choice over whether or not these new, now ubiquitous technologies uh, are, have control over us. And I am going to take his TED Talk and uh, put it at the end of this episode so you can listen to his entire TED Talk on uh, the uh, dangers of technology. Uh, he is a graduate of Stanford University. Harris studied under B.J. Frog, a behavioral psychologist revered in tech circles for mastering the ways technological design can be used to persuade people. Many of his students, including Ayal, have gone on to prosperous careers in Silicon Valley. Um, Harris, who says a handful of people working at a handful of technology companies through their own choices will steer what a billion people are thinking about today. I don't know a more urgent pro progress, uh, sorry, problem than this. It's changing our democracy, and it's changing our ability to have conversations and relationships that we want with each other. Well, again, I don't think it's changing our democracy. It's certainly changing the way that politics works, and it is making us more tribal, but that's democracy. <laughs> it is changing our Republican values. And because these people are so uneducated on how our government is supposed to work and how our government was founded, they call it democracy. They don't realize that what they're actually arguing for is a return to Republican values, to constitutional values. Uh, but they probably wouldn't say that even if they knew because it wouldn't be popular in the tech circles. Um so, and it doesn't have to change your relationships. You have control and free will. Um, although he argues you don't. He explored how LinkedIn exploits a need for social reciprocity to widen its network, how YouTube and Netflix autoplay videos and next episodes depriving, depriving users of a choice about whether they want to keep watching, how Snapchat created its addictive snap streaks feature. That's where you see like the little fire emoji and a little number of 12. And that means that you and that person have had a streak going for 12 days. Uh, so I have several people where it's like, ooh, i got to keep the streak going. Encouraging near-constant communication between its mostly teenage users. Uh, the techniques these companies use are not always generic. They can be algorithmically tailored to each person. An internal Facebook report leaked this year, for example, revealed that the company can identify when teens feel insecure, worthless, and need a confidence boost. Those are all in quotes. Such granular information, Harris adds, is a perfect model for what buttons you can push in what particular person. Tech companies, this is really important, listen to this, tech companies can exploit such vulnerabilities to keep people hooked, manipulating, for example, when 
people receive likes for their posts. Ensuring they arrive when an individual is likely to feel vulnerable or in need of approval or maybe just bored. And the very same technique can be sold to the highest bidder. There's no ethics, he says. A company paying Facebook to use its levers of persuasion could be a car business targeting tailored advertisements to seek different types of users who want a new vehicle, or it could be a Moscow-based troll farm seeking to turn voters in Swing County in Wisconsin. Now, here's the difference with that. If you are in Wisconsin and you see an ad of Jesus arm-wrestling Hillary Clinton, that isn't something you necessarily pay to see or would be persuaded by. When you are an advertiser, a small business who pays Facebook, you're paying to be shown your your ad is being paid you're paying your to oh my goodness. You are paying for your ad to be shown to people that want to see your ad. And that is the beauty of this technology of this form of advertising is I'm not spending my money to show my advertising to people that don't care to see it. I'm showing it to people who want to see it. So we as consumers get to see advertisers that adver, advertisements that we want to see. So I really don't see it as all bad. And, and I've talked in previous episodes about how it actually helps the economy. You know, I work with a small garden center here on the south side of Indianapolis uh, called Damon's Lawn and Garden, shout out, or uh, Damon's Garden Company, excuse me, their new name. And, you know, they have the ability to market on Facebook for a price within their budget where they don't have the budget to advertise on TV or, or radio. And so they get an increase of business for a lesser cost, which allows them to buy more product or to hire new people. So it helps their bottom line, which is the point of advertising. And the only people that see it are the people that are interested in the, in the Damon's Garden Company product. And so targeted advertising is not a bad thing. It isn't inherently bad. Uh, it's only when politics was applied to it that everybody started to freak out. Uh, so, you know, they talk about the red icon that are on your iPhones and Android devices and how they used to use, Facebook used to use the blue dot to match their branding, and nobody used it, Harris said. So that red icon is now everywhere. Uh, red is a trigger color. That's why it's used as an alarm signal, and it shows the variable rewards. Um, you you see that little red dot, and you you have to go check what it is. And think about your own behavior. When I see that red dot, I immediately go on the few apps that I have that badge turned on to see what that red dot is. So I have notifications turned off on pretty much everything. I have the New York Times just in case there's like a 9-11 type catastrophe and I, I you know, need to race here to get to you guys. I have Snapchat turned on because that's where a lot of my social circle and I talk. Um, and that's sort of it. I think my bank. But I turn all notifications off. And I can tell you that since doing that three or four months ago, I am my ADD isn't as bad. I'm more productive. I would say I'm generally more happy. Um, I am less involved in my phone. So I can't recommend turning the badge at least off. Especially you people who have like 27,000 emails. Oh my God, that annoys me. <laughs> That's so annoying. Like check your email, delete some stuff, become an inbox zero advocate. Another feature that 
they talk about that I didn't realize was addictive until I read this article, but it totally makes sense, was the pull to refresh mechanism. So when you're on Twitter or Facebook and you pull down on the app and it, you know, it has that little click, that little satisfying click vibration, and then it shows you a bunch of new stuff, it essentially plays on the same part of your brain that gambling does, which I found <laughs> amazing. Uh, so two of the guys, uh, there's two inventors at Apple, the guys who actually came up with the icon badges, Justin Santamaria and Chris Marcelino, um, created the push notification. I'm sorry, the actual push uh, stuff for Apple. Uh, they're not as worried about tech, and I felt this was an important aspect um, where he asks, Santa Maria asks some really important questions. He's now at Airbnb. This is a larger discussion for society. Is it okay to shut off my phone when I leave work? Is it okay if I don't get right back to you? Is it okay that I'm not liking everything that goes through my Instagram screen? And I agree with that completely because the ethics of society have totally changed. If I don't reply to your text message within a fairly short amount of time, you get mad at me. You know, everybody's expected to be completely available at all times because we know the other person is available and it plays on our own insecurities, our own codependency, our own sense of self-worth, where if somebody doesn't reply right away, we think that person thinks we're less than. And I think that's that's um that's an important piece of this puzzle is what are your expe expectations for other folks and what are you willing to accept in terms of expectations on your time? I can tell you that I don't like phone calls and I'm about to put up a, a voicemail message that says I don't, I don't use the phone and I don't check voicemails and so if you need to reach me, please email me or send me a text message. And I know that there's going to be people who think I sound like an asshole. But I don't give a shit <laughs> because it's my life. I'm going to live it the way I want. I don't enjoy talking on the phone. It, it slows down my day. There are very few people that I enjoy talking to on the phone. Uh, you know, and like my nieces on, on FaceTime, a couple close friends, and that's it. And there are times where the phone is much easier. I had a business call yesterday where the phone was much easier than going back and forth on the on the email system. On the email machine, uh, so the phone was necessary then, but the call was set up with an email. So I, I just, I'm out on the phone. I don't want to be called. I don't want to talk on the phone. I don't see it as a, a productive use of my day. I don't respond to people on text message right away. I don't respond to people on email right away, and it's because I'm busy creating. And every minute that I spend on some sort of techno on my laptop or on my phone, then I'm spending less time prepping for this and doing the things that I want to do, like go to the gym or uh, you know go hang out with my nieces or hang out with friends and family. Uh, so I, I just think we have to think about what expectations we have for others and what expectations we are willing to accept for our time and then being unafraid to be a dick uh, because you can be as clear as possible that I don't use this technology anymore I'm sorry but there's still going to be people who are going to miss that and think that you're slighting them and that you hate them that's but that's not my problem um, 
you know, Mar- Chris Marcioleno agrees. Uh, there's no point where I was sitting there thinking, let's hook people. It's all about positives. These apps connect people. They have all these uses. ESPN telling you the game has ended or WhatsApp giving you a message for free from your family member in Iran who doesn't have a message plan. A few years ago, Marcelino left the Bay Area and now is in the final stages of retraining to be a neurosurgeon. He stresses he is no expert on addiction but says he has picked up enough in his medical training to know that the technologies can affect the same neurological pathways as gambling and drug use. These are the same circuits that people make that people seek out food, comfort, heat, sex, he says. So it's part of your base uh, desires, part of your ubla amlagada or whatever that thing that the water boy went crazy over. So it it's the same circuits, let me read that again, that make people seek out food, comfort, heat, and sex. I mean, there are a lot of people on these platforms for sex. Um, James Williams doesn't think the talk of dystopia is far-fetched. The ex-Google strategist who built the metric system for the company's global research in the advertising business has had a front-row view of an industry he describes as the largest, most standardized, and most centralized form of attentional control in human history. Williams, 35, left Google last year and is on the cusp of completing a Ph.D. at Oxford University, exploring the ethics of persuasive design. It is a journey that has led him to question whether or not democracy can survive the new technological age. Again, you're experiencing democracy, you want a republic. That discomfort was compounded during a moment at work when he glanced at one of the Google dashboards, a multicolored display showing how many people's attention the company had com- commandeered for advertisers. I realized this is literally a million people that we've sort of nudged or persuaded to do this thing that weren't going to do otherwise, he recalls. And as a digital marketer and as a professional communicator using these technologies, totally agree. I am able to subtly, without you realizing it, get you to pick up, uh, I can maybe not you, but an audience, a mass audience, you can introduce, if you do certain things, you can introduce certain ideas that the group will then parrot. And uh, you, you don't realize how tribal we actually are. Uh, he says, 87% of people wake up and go to sleep with their smartphones. The entire world now has a new prism through which to understand politics, and Williams worries the consequences are profound. The same forces that led tech firms to hook users with design tricks, he says, encourages them them uh, encourages those companies to depict the world in a way that makes for compulsive, irresistible viewing. The attention economy incentivizes the design of technologies that grab our attention. In doing so, it privileges our impulses over our intentions. Repeat that. It privileges our impulses over our intentions. That means privileging what is sensational over what is nuanced. Appealing to emotion, anger, and outrage. The news media is increasingly working in service to tech companies, Williams adds, and must play by the rules of the attention economy to sensationalize, bait, and entertain in order to survive. Boy, doesn't that sound uh, like uh, the truth. So, he says, it's not only distorting the way we view politics, basically after... After the article bashes capitalism, Brexit, and the election of Donald Trump, 
so that's the context for the statement. Williams says is it's not only distorting the way we view politics, but over time maybe changing the way we think, making us less rational and more impulsive. We've habituated ourselves into perpetual cognitive style of outrage by internalizing the dynamics of the medium. The dynamics of the attention economy are structurally set up to undermine the human will. If politics is an expression of our human will on individual and collective levels, then the attention economy is directly undermining the assumptions of that democracy rests on. Again, it's feeding it. It is not undermining anything. It's undermining the, the traditions and the institutions and the... Uh, the yeah the just the institutions and traditions that we've been guided by in this country it's undermining those and allowing us to move into more of a democracy where the the mob rules and that's what's making them uncomfortable they're never going to say that uh, because it would mean a more conservative approach to politics and I don't mean that in a political sense I mean that we would conserve traditions and institutions at the expense of progress. What liberal is going to argue for that? <laughs> They're not going to. So um, it's chipping away at how we control our minds. So, so that is, I think, an interesting look, and I will throw a couple TED Talks on to the end of this that uh, not only give you some strategies on how to think about how you deal with this stuff, but also uh, just... The, the Tristan Harris, like, hey, let me sound the alarm on this, because I don't think this is a perspective that you get a lot of places. And I still think there are benefit to these social networks, but I think there has to be some ethical, uh, you know, almost like the Hippocratic Oath. Like, the Hippocratic Oath amongst doctors was not a, it's, it's not a, a, an enforced standard, although a lot of it has been enshrined into U.S. law. But the Hippocratic Oath is an ethical ide ideal where doctors are ruled by this set of ethics, this oath. And you know maybe the tech industry ought to think about some sort of Hippocratic Oath for, for their industry. Um, but in, in reality, what's going to happen instead of that happening is these companies are going to fight for regulation because this is what happens throughout human history. Companies create products that build new markets, build new industries, they amass a vast amount of wealth, and they move from being uh, involved in the market economy into the political economy. And so you're going to see, and you already are seeing, Mark Zuckerberg and some of these other corporations start to push for regulation over their industry. Well, that seems crazy, right? No. They want to protect their position because they are now starting to lose market share. And, uh, you know, this this Inc. research, INC research, showed the social network, Facebook, lost 1.4 million users in the 12 to 17-year-old demographic, according to a new report from the research firm eMarketer. That represents a, a decline of nearly 10%, or roughly three times what analysts have predicted. So when you see a declining usage like that, they're going to protect their shareholders, they're going to protect their value by buying off the government to institute themselves as the main players. So it is incredibly important for us to start leaving these platforms and supporting other platforms that we think are important and share our values and have, without being expressly uh, express, expressive about it, 
supporting some sort of tech Hippocratic oath. And one of those people is Bill Ottman over at Minds.com. Had a great conversation with him a week ago, and I wanted to do an interview with him for you so you can hear a little bit about Minds.com. Now, it is a social network that is built around bigger ideas. But I think you'll hear in this interview with Bill, you have a corporation that is building a social network, but trying to do it in a responsible way that doesn't game your brain, but affords you the ability to start working with other folks who, who are thinkers, commenting, uploading memes, and do that, uh, in, in a fun and expressive way that allows discussion and allows free speech, but doesn't use you as the product because they have a separate funding mechanism using uh, blockchain technology. So I think you're really going to find this to be very instructive and interesting because they have managed to do what we like, which is uh, allow the freedom of discussion, the, allow the freedom of speech without using us as the product because they have a separate funding mechanism and it's supported by the community. So with that, I want to play you my interview with Bill Ottman and uh, hope you enjoy it. Joining me on the line is Bill Ottman. He is the CEO and the co-founder of Minds.com. It is, it, it's not a brand new social media network. It's brand new to me though. And I wanted to talk to Bill. I had a conversation with him last week and I'm really interested in the platform and many of you who listen to the show know that I have been uh, less than enthused with what's going on in the world of social media and the censorship that is happening at the top levels. And lo and behold, Minds.com hit me up and said, hey, would you like to have a conversation with our CEO and co-founder? Bill Ottman joins me on the line, and I said yes. And uh, Bill, how did, you get, how did you come up with the idea for Minds.com? Hey, thanks for having me. So I always kind of knew that there was inevitably going to be some sort of free and open alternative to establishment social networks. Uh, and I mean free and open in terms of like the software itself and also policy and like in a number of different ways. But so the comparison is like, look at Wikipedia and WordPress. I mean, Wikipedia is in the top 10 sites in the world. It's sort of destroyed all of the proprietary crappy encyclopedias not not that wikipedia is necessarily the number one source for information in the world but it's one of the most popular sources for information and it's totally open source anyone can help with the software anyone can inspect it to make sure it's not spying on you and so this is also happening in with cryptocurrency i mean bitcoin is free and open source blockchain and all in all these different industries open alternatives are rising to the top and so we just decided to, to go for it in the social networking world. So looking, take us back. Tell us a little bit about your career path that led you to this and what are some of the things that you learned along the way that led you to founding Minds.com? I mean, I was always interested in working with crowds. I did a lot of stuff with organizing music festivals and forums and panels and stuff like that around you know, sort of combining elements of uh, organizing with music, art, culture, but also like activism. 
But then the live event scene was just, it's impossible to scale. (laughs) And I always saw issues with uh, Facebook and stuff from a social perspective. I was turned off by it initially because it was just freaked me out how everyone was just looking at their phone all the time. And I was really sort of allergic to it. But then, you know, obviously the internet is the internet and it's awesome and there's so many reasons to embrace it but it has to be embraced from more of a a secure open ethical point of view okay let's let's go back to that let's talk about the physiological or the biological aspect of social media because you touched on something that I read a book called Bored and Brilliant uh, over the last couple months, and it basically talks about the need for the human mind to be bored. And I just took a trip. I just got back uh, about an hour ago from a trip, and every and I just kind of noticed that everyone around me on my trip, like last night at dinner, if there's a pause, we all look at our phones, we all talk on our phones, there isn't a moment where we're not filling the gaps with, if it's not in our daily lives, it's filled with looking at the phone. What about that troubled you, and what about that made you think, you know what, I'm going to contribute to that by creating a social network? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you have to play in both worlds, and balance, you know, educating ourselves about how to balance those worlds is, is important. I think it's, you know, when you're in, you should be in, and when you're out, you should be out. And I think that, you know, so designing a social media app to combat that is it's like going in, into the matrix to destroy it sort of but um you know it's not either or i don't think that polarizing situation is if it's like you know technology bad you know uh sitting in the woods good like both are good <laughs> and we just yeah need to learn how to how to turn off as much as possible and i think that there's a lot of work that major networks can do to to help people get there and that's been one of the major criticisms. I mean, even the head of the, the guy essentially who worked at Facebook, who was in charge of getting subscribers and getting people engaged, basically came out and, and gave a speech and said, yeah, we're using your serotonin and dopamine against you and have created a platform right. that that is, you know, weaponizing human behavior, which is a really a scary thought. And I've noticed definitely I would say there's an, an addiction there for me. So how does something like Minds.com in the way that you've structured your platform combat that? Because it seems to me that if you're on a social network, you're it's almost, especially in the early days, it was like a game. You want to get as many followers as possible. You want to get as many likes as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what people are familiar with. They're familiar with kind of that game uh, where you're smashing the button to get as much serotonin like a little rat. So how have you designed Minds.com to be different than that? Yeah, I think it's all about transparency. So, you know, games are fun. And I think that, you know, a healthy addiction is is okay. So, but really in terms of the algorithms that we're using, well, we're not using algorithms in the newsfeed. It's just totally chronological. So we're never going to mess with people's ability to access their audiences and, you know, stuff that Facebook did with, yeah, the psychological experiments and they even found that by injecting positive or negative stories into people's feeds, they could actually control emotions. And they did this whole secretive experiment with Princeton about that, that they got a lot of flack for. And then we recently just saw one of Facebook's growth executives come out and, you know, talk about 
he did an internal memo that totally admitted they would, it was growth at all costs. I mean, take everybody's contacts, just, just infect everybody's phones to the greatest possible degree. Uh, no, you know, no, no matter the cost, because all we care about is growth, not any kinds of uh, privacy or uh, user rights. Hmm. Yeah. And in talking to you, you said that you don't have an algorithm and and I'm not familiar enough with the way that you would set up a social network to know, you know, the difference. But you you said that if I post something on Minds.com, that 100% of the people that subscribe to me are going to see it. Yes, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's insane what happened on is happening on a lot of these big sites where you gain this huge following, or even just a normal size following, and then you post to your followers and they can't even see it because they're algorithms are you know prioritizing things in strange ways that we don't even know what's happening so it's not to say algorithms are inherently bad you know potentially if the user chooses to opt into a certain type of curation then that would be okay but the default experience should totally be that you have 100 percent reach i mean that's sort of obvious it's crazy that they thought that that was okay <laughs> right. Well, it takes them from being an AT&T or Comcast-like utility where they're essentially just a platform for people to converse with each other or connect with each other to more of a publisher point of view. And I was listening to Ben Shapiro and he was saying, you know, under Section 230, under United States law, you're protected if you're essentially a platform that's a utility from being sued, for instance, for posting people posting user third-party generated user-generated content on your site. Uh, I mean, do you look at yourself as a publisher? Or do you look at yourself as a utility? Definitely more as utility, trying to stay uh, as pure as possible in that sense. I mean, yeah, the the curation that that Facebook's doing, especially with trending news. I mean, that's where they were really getting into curation and and hiding certain stuff. And, but, you know, it also applies to people's news feeds where, you know, they're hiding things, but that also has to do with them wanting you to pay to reach your fans. So that, that's like sort of putting the restriction on, on your communication so that you have to pay to communicate. Right. So when did minds.com get founded? In, officially in 2011, but we didn't. We were just building tech for years, and we didn't do any kind of a big public launch until 2015. And then we launched our first mobile apps. Then they got a bunch of attention for our uh, messenger encryption features. And you know, since then we've been just revamping everything. And finally, just just this past week, we launched uh, new mobile app, native mo- mobile apps, which are so much faster and better. And a whole blockchain in- integration, so that users are where everyone's rewarded with digital currency for their activity and engagement that they receive. And then you can actually use those tokens to boost your posts for more views on top of your 100%, or send uh, peer-to-peer to other users. And there's like a whole crowdfunding system. So uh, we're pretty excited about it. So tell us more about the token system because this is you go out, you send it out to 100% of your user base but then you can use tokens almost like a boosted post to to feed yourself into n- new territory essentially. Uh and how 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 does that work? What was the thinking behind that and uh how y- you can make money as a publisher on the platform, can't you? Yep. 
yeah, you can receive monthly subscriptions from your community and then you can put stuff behind uh, a paywall if you want to have exclusive content or you can list other rewards as a creator, similar to some other crowdfunding sites. But yeah, I mean, the, the whole boost feature, basically on the bottom of your post, there's a little button that says boost. And if, you know, you have points or now they're called tokens. We did, had an internal system for a couple of years called points and it was really successful. So we just moved it over to crypto. But yeah, if you have a post you want to boost further, you just press the, press the boost button, you know, give it 5,000 views, boost it. And you can either target at the full network where it'll get distributed through people's news feeds. So like, you know, once every 15 posts or something, you'll see a boosted post. And then you can also target other specific users. So someone, I could send you an offer of, you know, 50 bucks and you would get an offer that says, Hey, Bill's offering 50 bucks to share this post. You say yes or no. If you say yes, it goes to your, you, you know, get shared to your followers and then that's it. So it's more direct advertising, which I think is already happening on a lot of networks where big channels and pages are paying each other kind of underground in order to cross promote. But we, we wanted to automate that because it's so much better for people to just directly pay each other and get rewarded for their audiences. Yeah, it's less sneaky. Uh, and I can mm-hmm. working in the digital marketing world, you know, in the back end of my pages, I can see, and I like this as an advertiser or as somebody who is, you know, marketed, market minded, marketing minded. Excuse me, I can't talk. Uh, you can see the makeup of the type of people that follow your page, and that's great as a marketer, but. Facebook's power to collect data, especially Facebook, probably more than anybody else, is starting to get creepy. Like the copying of your text and call log on the Android phones. So your your goal is transparency, correct? I mean, at one point, so was Facebook's and Google was don't be evil. And over time, I mean, they kind of lurched into that stuff. So do you have any kind of checks and balance systems within the company to make sure that you you don't move away from your core mission? Yeah, for sure. And first of all, Facebook and Google, you know, they say that, but their software was always proprietary. You could never look at their code and see what it was actually doing. You know, their terms were always very, you know, in some ways open about what they were doing and the rights that they had with your data. And so you know, they were never transparent. You know, Twitter would say that it was the free speech wing, the free speech party or something. Again, they're not open source. All their code is proprietary. They obviously went off the deep end and abandoned free speech for the most part. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, all of our code is on GitHub. Anyone can comment on it and inspect it and our policies as well. So we are encouraging people to comment on both our policies and code and we can sort of evolve it together. Okay, that's great. Yeah, so the funding essentially comes from the token system, correct? Yeah, and that's not even, that's only on a test network right now. It's on the Ethereum test net and we'll be moving that onto a mainnet hopefully soon in the future. But we, our main funding comes from, we did an equity crowdfunding round where 1,500 of our community members uh, got involved and in, that was last year and we raised like a million dollars in like record time in the U S and so, you know, we're trying to stay away from shady 
investors, obviously, and keep it much more community driven. Yeah, I've noticed that you have a really strong community, and that's one of the things that I don't see around a Gab or a MeWe or WeMe. I don't even know what it's called, but <laughs> uh, you have a really strong user base of very dedicated people who seem to be really invested in the platform in a way that I haven't seen since the early days of Facebook and some of these other platforms. I mean, that's got to be a good sign for you and your staff when you look at that and go, wow, we've got a really strong community that's supporting us. Yeah, definitely. I think that the people, once it clicks, you just get that uh, positive feedback. And honestly, it is, uh, one thing that I want to be focusing more on in the future is, is sort of that work-life balance and tech-nature balance because it's uh, it's hard, especially especially when you're earning uh, reach. You know, because people are so pissed off and disillusioned by you know posting to Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and having like you know one like if they're lucky. This is for most people, and then suddenly you know you it, it's literally easier on minds to gain a following as a small creator and get engagement than even you know multi-billion user social networks. And it's, it makes no sense because so we have a million users, but you can actually reach them. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's very rewarding, almost too rewarding sometimes. <laughs> I would say the hardest thing, I have a friend here in town who tried to start a social network based around uh, po- politics. He, his goal was essentially, I don't, I don't want to do politics on Facebook. It doesn't work. I want to have a place where it is all politics, so people can just focus on sharing their lives on Facebook. And this was probably three years ago, two years ago, and I just said, I don't know, man. That seems like a waste of time. Everybody's on Facebook. And he was a little too early. He went out of business because he just couldn't get enough folks onto the platform. He's now actually, he and I are talking uh, about how he's going to relaunch it, and he may come on the program as well. Uh, it was a site called Roust. But how do you try and get people into the platform? Because that is the key to these new social networks. I've start, I've tried them all, Path, all the ones, you know, Peach, all the ones that have gone, come and gone. How do you get people engaged in your platform so when I sign up, there are people there that I want to engage with? Yeah, I mean, that's where it's all about the reward system and incentivization and, you know, people we think earn or deserve reach. So for signing up, you're essentially going to get some exposure and that's how you get more people. And then a lot of all the, the, the horrible behavior of these other networks is just driving people to us. So it, was, it, it doesn't seem like they're stopping this kind of behavior, whether it's with surveillance or you know, free speech issues or demonetization. You know, there's any number of issues that are pissing people off that are are driving them to us and as long as we can do the opposite of all of those things i think that hopefully the momentum will keep going okay so and i'm looking here uh i've signed up for an account and the top folks to subscribe to a lot of these uh libertarians will a lot of these folks libertarians will be familiar with wikileaks uh, jordan peterson count dankula joe rogan uh there's Paul Joseph Watson and InfoWars, uh, which I'll that'll lead into my next question. Ben Swan, uh, yeah. So a lot of people that I think libertarians would be familiar with. 
There is one, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but there's one that's David Hogg. So I thought, oh wow, David Hogg's on this. You know the no. I'll I'll just say some of the some some of those trending channels are um, most of those are real that you said, but some of them are people who have made accounts for those things, and we actually have to deal. You know, they're like fan accounts. I think the, the David Hogg one is a is a satire, and we need to we need to look at that. But that's actually that... some of those. Ju- some of those just rose up to trending because people were uh, were making accounts. So we either have to hand them over to those people, or uh, or deal with it. So that that leads into my next question because looking at the David Hogg, I before the interview, I was like, oh, okay, well this is kind of making fun of him. Which listen, I'm all for, uh, but <laughs> when you're trying to put together a platform based around you know intelligent discussion. How do you deal with that? Do you have a policy where it has to be the person? So if I click, yeah, subs- you can't impersonate. You, you that that that's not okay. Yeah, that's against terms. That 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 can even get illegal. So you know, if it's illegal in the U.S., then it's not legal on our platform. And you know, especially with like copyright and you know all the different kinds of of violations that need to be reported. So we have good reporting tools. Like if you. If you see that stuff, you should report it, and it has to go through the proper channels. But yeah, I mean that—that that is the insanity of of social media. I mean, people are just going nuts. Right. So deal, dealing with it is 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 fun, I I suppose. <laughs> yeah, because you want authenticity, but you also want freedom of expression. So. And and it goes down to the fake news stuff where some platforms look at Infowars and say, well, they're fake news. We don't want them on our platform. Uh, so how are you internally dealing with the the conversation of we want authenticity, we want freedom of expression, we we also want this to not turn into a sewer. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we don't want these things, but we do want these things. I mean, how are some of those decisions made, and where are you drawing the line? on free speech on your platform. Well, I mean, if you just look at the other networks too, it's not as if there aren't parody accounts for certain public figures on, on those sites. There's thousands of them. And, um, you know, if it's legal, we're, once you step over the line of, you know, making a subjective decision about content, we can't really get into that. So, that's where things get really, really scary. And that's not the position that, that we want to be in is deciding what deserves to stay and what can't. So that's sort of where the, the laws in the country come into play. And then granted, if it's um, abusing the site, like spamming groups really hard and just like malicious stuff, then that's obviously not okay. Um, and if people's content is being abused, if, you know, in, uh, identities are being taken, like, then that's not okay. But anonymity is an important right that we believe in. So you should be able to make an anonymous account. But if you abuse that, uh, obviously, then it's not going to be all right. Right. So, listen, I'm all for InfoWars and uh, Alex Jones and, and some of these other more controversial folks having channels or Facebook pages or YouTube channels because I think a lot of that stuff is interesting and I think that it does add to public discourse because if you don't agree with it, refute it. Uh, and but let's let's take it down to white supremacists. Okay, that's the that's the real mm-hmm. buzzword. 
Uh, if I were a white supremacist, would I yeah. do you believe that they have a right to have a channel on your platform or in general even? Well, yeah. I mean, but that, not that that means support of them at all. It's sort of there, there's a really interesting case study of this man named Daryl Davis, who's a African-American dude, and he approached hundreds of members of the KKK and befriended them and talked to them and had reasonable face to face discourse with them and got most of them to change their minds and leave the KKK. So and, and there's also dozens of studies showing empirically that censorship amplifies violence and extremism. So, you know, these big social networks that are banning, quote unquote, offensive content. I mean, yes, yeah, certain stuff is probably, you know, real harassment and, and not legal, but they are making the global problem much worse. They're actually the ones who are indirectly or directly uh, causing a lot of these violent upheavals to take place because when you ban ideas, it causes more tension to go to them. Right. Yeah, and I totally agree. And you brought up uh, Daryl Davis. Accidental Courtesy is a documentary about his life He's a jazz musician, and it's a fantastic documentary, and I think that's a, a great example of engagement brings people into the mainstream, out from the shadows, when you actually just engage them and have a discussion with them. And that's, that's definitely a plus for your site, because uh, I think it is important to engage ideas, even the ideas that we think are despicable or gross, because... You're not going to change their mind by pushing them all onto their own little corner of the internet and letting their ideas fester. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that even personally. Um, you don't change people's ideas by either banning them or, you know, trying to force them to think what you think. I think that ultimately the, the good ideas rise to the top just as long as you're patient and, and, and keep engaging respectfully. Generally, I, I think people are, are, I don't know if it's generally, but many people are willing to change their minds. And there, there's a weird effect on your brain when you feel like you're being conquered or you're trying to conquer someone into thinking something. That's when people just shut down. Yeah, absolutely. I put up a poll in our and I'm sorry to say this Facebook group <laughs> uh, because I'm I'm looking at our next move as a community. We're not only a podcast, but we have a large community of people that engage with each other. And I'm a content publisher, so I want people to see my stuff. And I asked them, "What are the features that you're most interested in in another site? What are the must-haves?" So I want to kind of run through some of these just to see if you have these features. Uh, for our audience to see if this is a, a platform they'd like to join. Number one, by a large margin, was the ability to comment on content. Do you have that ability? Yes. Okay. A mobile option. Yep. All right. So I when we spoke last week, it wasn't in the store yet. So have you deployed to the uh, Apple and Android stores? We, de we deployed. We're, we're in... Android now, and we actually just heard from Apple that it's going to be in the store. So if it's not in there today, it'll be in there like early early next week, maybe this weekend. Great. But yeah. Okay. And there's and there's good mobile responsive 
uh, apps. So it works in the mobile browser well. Okay. Well. Uh, the ability to post photos and memes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, ha- it has a news feed. I'll just run through it. I mean, it's got okay, let's do that. Feed. Yeah. We, we, ho- we host video. It's got image. You can upload images. So you have, you have your whole status bar, just like on other social networks. We have groups. Um, we have blogging platforms. So you can do, go more in-depth blogs. We have a wallet where you can, uh, that's where all your earnings go. And that's where you sort of send to other users. We have the whole boost system where you can boost your posts. So you have a channel like YouTube channel. And um, we don't have, I mean, I know a lot of people want live streaming and more video stuff. That's definitely a priority for us in the future. Um, but yeah, what else is on the list? Uh, that pretty much nails it. Uh, I mean, people want the same features that they have with a lot of the other sites. I mean, then the biggest concern was just, is my privacy going to be protected? Are my friends going to switch over? And uh, we've covered all that. On video uploads, is there a time limit? Yeah, unfortunately there is right now. It's like uh, 15 minutes just because video is so, so expensive. (laughs) Actually, like almost half half of our costs are video right now. We want to be able to support it as much as possible. So I think this year we're going to be bulking out our, our backend infrastructure to support video and make it cheaper for us. But, you know, that's one of those luxuries that Google has. They, they you know, hold the carrot, uh, carrot out with that free unlimited video. And you see so many other video sites die just because it's so expensive. So we're really trying to walk that line. And there's also cool stuff that we might be able to integrate with, like, peer-to-peer video hosting to, to help with the costs as well. But it, it's a priority. I mean, you have to have video. The only other thing that I think I should mention in our conversation, you said that if I post something, it is totally public. Why did you make that decision to make it completely public? Um, because just sort of simplicity for the beginning. So in your messenger, everything's encrypted. We don't even have access to the content of your conversations and built that on purpose so that you know, it couldn't get compromised. But in regards to, you know, regular posting on the site, everything's public just because we didn't want to build out these fake private profiles like Facebook does, where they say it's private, but it's really not private and not encrypted. And we really do care about privacy. So we didn't, we just didn't want to uh, do that unless it truly was private. And so it's not to say that we wouldn't build something like that in the future where you could have more like, tiered access to your posts, but we just want to ensure that it's done right. Okay, cool. very cool. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience in terms of, give us your elevator pitch uh, on Minds.com? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I hate pitches, but <laughs> it's more about supplementing your social media situation because you don't know what's going to happen with other networks. And I think supporting places that you support is important. doesn't mean you have to abandon everything else, but that's how new apps grow is by people just making an account, checking in, seeing what's going on. And I mean, because those are the metrics that drive the growth that get more people to come. So if talking about the ideas without making even just like a five minute, kind of move is sort of that's why I mean I don't even think it's just about minds 
in terms of your whole, all the apps you use, browser, I think it's important to use Firefox and other open source browsers, Brave, um, your OS, you know, all the other apps, you know, contribute to Wikipedia, use um, other, there's other open source networks out there too. It's just, it's generally a movement in itself. So I think that it's pretty essential to, you know, give a little bit of energy when possible. Awesome. Well, I I think it looks really pretty. It's really functional, and I've got twelve subscribers. So if you want to follow me on yeah. Minds.com, uh, follow us there. Bill's also on the platform. Bill Ottman. What's your username? Uh, it is. Thank you. Uh, C Spangle. Minds. C Spangle. Okay. Yeah. Hit, yeah. hit me up. I'm uh, at Ottman O T T M N. So anyone who's listening, feel free to message me. I'm, I'm I try to be as accessible as possible. And yeah, let's uh, let's keep rocking. Awesome. So thanks so much for giving us your time, and we look forward to interacting with you on your platform. Now, Minds.com isn't the only player out there. There is also something called MeWe. I've seen Gab is something that is popular. We're on Discord. Uh, we have a Discord channel. Um, there's There's a lot of alternatives out there for people to leave. I mean, there are... You just want information, you can sign up for our email newsletter and check out our website, which I'm going to be much much uh, more motivated from here on out to to use those two platforms in addition to this platform. Um, but I think it's important to support these, the test these out at least. Try them out and see what you think. And then if you like it, start trying to get your friends over to them. Uh, I think Minds.com looks really good. I think it's uh, pretty neat. Um, talking to a friend who is restarting a, a social network called Roust and seeing if there's some opportunity there for us. Uh, so so I'm just kind of testing this stuff out, and I think you should be as well. And uh, let me know what you think about these these newer social networks designed around political thought and free speech. And uh, I'll take I'll take all the all of that into consideration in terms of where I'm moving us as a community next. Um, but Bill has been very motivated, I would say, and very uh, excited about the We Are Libertarians community coming over to Minds.com. Uh, so I think that's really cool. And definitely sign up, check it out. A million users on Minds.com, a hundred thousand active, so it is pretty robust. And uh, twelve of our listeners, at least, are there at this point. So. Um, you know, and I don't think that you're going to see these big tech companies disappear. They're they're just not going to. They're pretty large. I mean, even MySpace still exists. Um, so there, there, and we'll still have a presence there because you've got to. But it is a transitional period in my mind. Uh, it's a transitional period for me, both in terms of how I'm uh I, I'm using them as a business owner, and we are libertarians, and uh, also personally. What kind of time am I devoting to these things? Like, as I, as I said in the last, as I played the Tahanisha Coates comment in the last episode, part of being mature is realizing what is not good for you. And I just don't think that spending two out of every five minutes on Facebook is good for me. Uh, and I, I can't imagine you think that either. So go check those out. Definitely uh, worth the sign up at minds.com uh, because I was really impressed with him in that interview. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of We Are Libertarians. I will uh, have a little audio addendum to these so you can check those out. Uh, I appreciate you joining me on this atypical episode. 
I think I'm going to do more where I am just talking by myself uh, because I want to get some practice at that. I want to get good at that. Um, uh, I, I'm not great at it yet. <laughs> I'm not great at talking in general, which is why this is such a stupid uh, career move for me. <laughs> but uh, at least several thousand of you think I'm good at it, so I'll go with it. We're always our own worst critics. I need to do an episode of the Chris Spangle Show and the Imposter Syndrome because I've I've really been feeling that lately. Like, man, when are you all going to wake up that I don't know what I'm talking about? Uh, and I think every creative feels that. So, please go to Facebook. Uh, if you don't delete your account, like us there, add us in our group, so you can follow where we're going next, <laughs> where the diaspora will lead. Uh, diaspora is a choice. I haven't looked into that. I wonder if that's still out there. So, all right, very cool. Thank you for joining me here on this episode of We Are Libertarians, and we will see you next week. I want you to imagine walking into a room, control room, with a bunch of people, a hundred people, hunched over at desks with little dials, and that that control room will shape the thoughts and feelings of a billion people. This might sound like science fiction, but this actually exists right now, today. I know because I used to be in one of those control rooms. I was a design ethicist at Google, where I studied how do you ethically steer people's thoughts. Because what we don't talk about is a handful of people working at a handful of technology companies, through their choices, will steer what a billion people are thinking today. Because when you pull out your phone and they design how this works or what the, on the, what's on the feed, it's scheduling little blocks of time in our minds. If you see a notification, it schedules you to have thoughts that maybe you didn't intend to have. If you swipe over that notification, it schedules you into spending a little bit of time getting sucked into something that maybe you didn't intend to get sucked into. When we talk about technology. We tend to talk about it as this blue sky opportunity、it、could go any direction, and I want to get serious for a moment and tell you why it's going in a very specific direction. Because it's not evolving randomly. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make, and that goal is the race for our attention. Because every news site, TED. Elections, politicians, games, even meditation apps have to compete for one thing, which is our attention. And there's only so much of it. And the best way to get people's attention is to know how someone's mind works. And there's a whole bunch of persuasive techniques that I learned in college at a lab called the Persuasive Technology Lab to get people's attention. A simple example is YouTube. YouTube wants to maximize how much time you spend. And so, what do they do? They、uh, autoplay the next video, and let's say that works really well. They're getting a little bit more of people's time. Well, if you're Netflix, you look at that and say, "Well, that's shrinking my market share, so I'm going to autoplay the next episode." But then, if you're Facebook, you say, "Well, no, that's shrinking all of my market share, so now I have to autoplay all the videos in the newsfeed before waiting for you to click play." So the internet is not evolving at random. The reason it feels like it's sucking us in, the way it is, is because of this race for attention. We know where this is going. Technology is not neutral.
and it becomes this race to the bottom of the brainstem of who can go lower to get it. Let me give you an example of Snapchat. If you didn't know, Snapchat is the number one way that teenagers in the United States communicate. So, if you're like me and you use text messages to communicate,、uh, Snapchat is that for teenagers. And there's like 100 million of them that use it. And they invented a feature called Snap Streaks, which shows the number of days in a row that two people have communicated with each other. In other words, what they just did is they gave two people something they don't want to lose. Because if you're a teenager and you have 150 days in a row, you don't want that to go away. And so think of the little blocks of time that that schedules in kids' minds. This isn't theoretical. When kids go on vacation, it's been shown they give their passwords up to, to up to five other friends to keep their snap streaks going, even when they can't do it. And they have like 30 of these things, and so they have to get through photo taking photos of just pictures or walls or ceilings just to get through their day. So it's not even like they're having real conversations. We have a temptation to think about this as, oh, they're just using、uh, you know Snapchat the way we used to gossip on the telephone. It's probably okay. Well, what this misses is that in the 1970s, when you were just gossiping on the telephone, there wasn't a hundred engineers on the other side of the screen who knew exactly how your psychology worked and orchestrated you into a double bind with each other. Now, if this is making you feel a little bit of outrage, notice that that thought just comes over you. Outrage is a really good way, also, of getting your attention, because we don't choose outrage; it happens to us. And if you're the Facebook newsfeed, whether you'd want to or not, you actually benefit when there's outrage, because outrage doesn't just schedule a, a reaction in an emotional time space for you. We want to share that outrage with other people, so we want to hit share and say, "Can you believe the thing that they said?" And so outrage works really well at getting attention, such that if Facebook had a choice between showing you the outrage feed and a calm newsfeed. They would want to show you the outrage feed, not because someone consciously chose that, but because that worked better at getting your attention. And、uh, the newsfeed control room is run by, is not accountable to us. It's only accountable to maximizing attention. It's also accountable because of the business model of advertising, for anybody who can pay the most to actually walk into the control room and say, "That group over there, I want to schedule these thoughts into their minds." So you can target, you can precisely target a lie directly to the people who are most susceptible. And because this is profitable, it's only going to get worse. So I'm here today because the costs are so obvious. I don't know a more urgent problem than this because this problem is underneath all other problems. It's not just taking away our agency. To spend our attention and live the lives that we want, it's changing the notion, the way we have our conversations. It's changing our democracy, and it's changing our ability to have the conversations and relationships we want with each other. And we, and it affects everyone because a billion people have one of these in their pocket. So how do we fix this? We need to make three radical changes to technology and to our society. The first is we need to acknowledge that we are persuadable. Once you start understanding that your mind can be scheduled into having little thoughts or little blocks of time that you didn't choose, 
Wouldn't we want to use that understanding and protect against the way that that happens? I think we need to see ourselves fundamentally in a new way. It's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment, but almost a kind of self-aware enlightenment that we can be persuaded, and there might be something we want to protect. The second is we need new models and accountability systems, so that as the world gets better and more and more persuasive over time, because it's only going to get more persuasive, that the people in those control rooms are accountable and transparent to what we want. The only form of ethical persuasion that exists is when the goals of the persuader are aligned with the goals of the persuadee, and that involves questioning big things like the business model of advertising. Lastly, we need a design renaissance, because once you have this view of human nature, that you can steer the timelines of a billion people. Just imagine there's people who have some desire about what they want to do and what they want to be thinking and what they want to be feeling. And how they want to be informed, and we're all just tugged into these other directions, and you have a billion people just tugged into all these different directions. Well, imagine an entire design renaissance that tried to orchestrate the exact and most empowering, time well spent way for those timelines to happen. And that would involve two things: one would be protecting against the timelines that we don't want to be experiencing, the thoughts that we that we wouldn't want to be happening. So when that ding happens, not having the ding that sends us away. And the second would be. Uh, empowering us to live out the timeline that we want. So let me give you a concrete example. Today, let's say your friend cancels dinner on you, and you、uh, are feeling a little bit lonely. And so, what do you do in that moment? You open up Facebook. And in that moment, the designers in the control room want to schedule exactly one thing, which is to maximize how much time you spend on the screen. Now, instead. Imagine if those designers created a different timeline that was the easiest way, using all of their data, to actually help you get out with the people that you care about. Think, just imagine how, <laughs> just alleviating all loneliness in society, if that was the timeline that Facebook wanted to make possible for people. Or imagine a different conversation where, let's say, you wanted to post something super controversial on Facebook, which is a really important thing to be able to do—to talk about controversial topics. And right now, when there's that big comment box. It's almost asking you, do you want to? What, what key do you want to type? In other words, it's scheduling a little timeline of things that you're going to continue to do on the screen. And imagine instead there was another button there saying, well, what would be most time well spent for you? And you click host a dinner. And right there, underneath the item, it said, who wants to RSVP for the dinner? And so you'd still have a conversation about something controversial, but you'd be having it in the most empowering place on your timeline, which would be at home that night with a bunch of friends over to talk about it. So imagine we're running like a find and replace on all of the timelines that are currently steering us towards more and more screen time persuasively, and replacing all of those timelines with what do we want in our lives? It doesn't have to be this way. Instead of handicapping our attention, imagine if we used all of this data and all of this power and this new view of human nature to give us a superhuman ability to focus, and a superhuman ability to put our attention on what we cared about, and a superhuman ability to have the conversations that we need to have for democracy. The most complex challenges in the world. Require not just us to use our in, our attention individually. They require us to use our attention and coordinate it together. Climate change is going to require that a lot of people 
are being able to coordinate their attention in the most empowering way together. And imagine being creating a superhuman ability to do that. Sometimes the world's most pressing and important problems are not these hypothetical future things that we could create in the future. Sometimes the most pressing problems are the ones that are right underneath our noses, the things that are already directing a billion people's thoughts. And maybe instead of getting excited about the new augmented reality and virtual reality and these cool things that could happen, which are going to be susceptible to the same race for attention, we could fix. The race for attention on the thing that's already in a billion people's pockets. Maybe instead of getting excited about the most exciting new, cool, fancy education apps, we could fix the way kids' minds are getting manipulated into sending empty messages back and forth. Maybe instead of worrying about hypothetical future runaway artificial intelligences that are maximizing for one goal, we could solve the Runaway artificial intelligence that already exists right now, which are these news feeds, maximizing for one thing. It's almost like instead of running away to, you know, colonize new planets, we could fix the one that we're already on. <laughs> solving this problem is critical infrastructure for solving every other problem. There's nothing in your life or in our collective problems that does not require our ability to put our attention where we care about. At the end of our lives, all we have is our attention and our time. What will be time well spent for ours? Thank you. Stan, thank you. Hey, thank you. stay up here a sec. Yeah. First of all, thank you. I, I know we asked you to do this talk on pretty short notice, and you've had a, you know, quite a stressful week getting this thing together. So thank, thank you, you for thank doing thank that. Thank you. Um, some people listening might say, "Well, look, what you, what, what you complain about is, is addiction, and all these people doing this stuff. For them, it's actually interesting. All these design decisions have built user content. This is fantastically interesting. The world's right. more interesting than it ever has been. Right. What's possibly wrong with that?" Well, I think it's really interesting. It's like one way to see this is、uh, if you're just face、uh, YouTube, for example, you want to always show the more interesting next video. You want to be better and better at suggesting that next video. But even if you could propose the perfect next video that everyone would want to watch, it would just be better and better at keeping you hooked on the screen. So what's missing in that equation is figuring out what our boundaries would be, right? You would want YouTube to know something about, say, falling asleep. The CEO of Netflix recently said. That our biggest competitors are Facebook. I mean, Facebook, YouTube, and sleep, right? And so, we, we, what we need to recognize is that the human architecture is limited, and that we have certain boundaries or, or dimensions of our lives that we want to be honored and respected. And technology could help do that. I mean, could you make the case that that you know part of the problem here is that we've got a a naive. Model of human human nature.、Right. So much of this is justified in terms of human preference. We're only we've got these algorithms that do an amazing job of optimizing for human preference, but which preference?、Um, there's there's the preferences of things that we really care about when we think about them、right. versus the preferences of what we just instinctively click on. If, if it, like if you could implant that more nuanced view of human nature in every designer, would that be a step forward? Absolutely. I mean, I think right now it's as if all of our technology is basically only asking our lizard brain. 
What's the best way to, to just impulsively get you to do the next tiniest thing with your time? Instead of asking you in your life what would be most time well spent for you, what would be the perfect timeline that might include something later? What would be time well spent for you here at TED in your last day here? So if, if Facebook and Google and everyone said to us first up, "Hey, would you like us to optimize for your reflective brain or your lizard brain? You choose." Right. That would be that one would be way. Nice. Yes. <laughs> cool. um, <laughs> and when you said you said persuadability, that's an interesting word to me because to me there's two different types of persuadability. There's the persuadability that we're trying right now of reason and thinking and making an argument. But I think you're almost talking about a different kind, a more visceral type of persuadability yeah. of being persuaded without even knowing that you're thinking. Exactly. Yeah. When I when I the reason I care about this problem so much is um, I studied at a lab called the, the Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford that taught people exactly these techniques. There's conferences and workshops that teach people all these covert ways of getting people's attention and orchestrating people's lives. And it's because most people don't know that that exists that this conversation is so important. Tristan, you and I, you know, we both know so many people from all these companies. There are actually many here in the room. And I don't know about you, but my experience of them is that there is no shortage of good intent. People, totally. people want a better world. They, they're, they're actually, um, they really want it. And um, And I don't think anything you're saying is you're saying these are evil people. It's it's that a system. There's these unintended consequences that have really got out of control. On this race for attention, yeah, it's the classic race to the bottom. That when you have to get attention and it's it's so tense, the only way to to get more is to go lower on the brainstem. You know, to to go lower into outrage, to go lower into emotion, to go lower into the lizard brain. Well, thank you so much for helping us all get a little bit wiser about this, Tristan Harris. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. All right, so. You probably don't realize that right now you're actually looking at something quite rare, because I am a millennial computer scientist book author standing on a TED stage, and yet I've never had a social media account. How this happened was actually somewhat random. You know, social media first came onto my radar when I was at college, my sophomore year of college. This is when Facebook arrived at our campus, and at the time, which was right after the first dot-com bust. I had had a dorm room business. I had had to shut it down in the bust, and then suddenly this other kid from Harvard named Mark had this product called Facebook, and people were getting excited about it. So it's sort of a fit of somewhat immature professional jealousy. I said, "I'm not going to use this thing. I'm not going to help this kid's business. What's that ever going to amount to?" So, anyways, I go along my life. I look up not long later, and I see that everyone I know is really hooked on this thing. And from the clarity you can get when you have some objectivity, some perspective on it, I realized. This seems a little bit dangerous, so I never signed up. I've never had a social media account since. So I'm here for two reasons. I want to deliver two messages. The first message I want to deliver is that even though I've never had a social media account, I'm okay. You don't have to worry. <laughs> It turns out I still have friends. I still know what's going on in the world. As a computer scientist, I still collaborate with people all around the world. I'm still regularly exposed serendipitously to interesting ideas, and I rarely describe myself as Lacking in entertainment options, so I've been okay. But I'd go even farther. I'd go even farther and say, not only am I okay without social media, but I think I'm actually better off. I think I'm happier. I think I find more sustainability in my life, and I think I've been more successful professionally because I don't use social media. So my second goal here on stage is to try to convince more of you to believe the same thing. To see if I could actually convince more of you that you too would be better off if you quit social media. So, if the theme of this TEDx event is future tense, I guess in other words, this would be my vision of the future. Would be one in which 
fewer people actually use social media. Okay, so that's a big claim. I think I need to back it up some. I thought what I would do is take the three most common objections I hear when I suggest to people that they quit social media. And then for each of these objections, I'll try to defuse the hype and see if I can actually push in some more reality. So this is the first most common objection I hear. That's not a hermit, that's actually a hipster web developer down from 8th Street, I'm not sure. <laughs> hipster or hermit, sometimes it's hard to tell. So this first objection goes as follows. Cal, social media is one of the fundamental technologies of the 21st century. To reject social media would be an act of extreme Luddism. It would be like riding to work in a horse or using a rotary phone. I can't take such a big stance in my life. So my reaction to that objection is, I think that is nonsense. Social media is not a fundamental technology. It leverages some fundamental technologies, but it's better understood as this, which is to say it's a source of entertainment. It's an entertainment product. The way the technologist Jaron Lanier puts it is that these companies offer you shiny treats in exchange for minutes of your attention and bytes of your personal data, which can then be packaged up and sold. So to say that you don't use social media should not be a large social stance, it's just rejecting one form of entertainment for others. It should be no more controversial than saying, I don't like newspapers, I like to get my news from magazines. Or I prefer to watch cable series as opposed to network television series. It's not a major political or social stance to say you don't use this product. My use of the slot machine image up here also is not accidental because if you look a little bit closer at these technologies, it's not just that they're a source of entertainment, but they're actually a somewhat unsavory source of entertainment. We now know that many of the major social media companies hire individuals called attention engineers who borrow principles from Las Vegas casino gambling, among other places, to try to make these products as addictive as possible. That is the desired use case of these products, is that you use it in an addictive fashion because that maximizes the profit that can be extracted from your attention and data. So it's not a fundamental technology. It's just a source of entertainment, one among many, and it's somewhat unsavory if you look a little bit closer. So here's the second common objection I hear when I suggest that people quit social media. The objection goes as follows. Cal, I can't quit social media because it is vital to my success in the 21st century economy. If I do not have a well-cultivated social media brand, people won't know who I am, people won't be able to find me, opportunities won't come my way, and I will effectively disappear from the economy. So again, my reaction is, once again, this objection also is nonsense. So I recently published this book that draws on multiple different strands of evidence to make the point that in a competitive 21st century economy, what the market values is the ability to produce things that are rare and are valuable. If you can produce something that's rare and is valuable, the market will value that. What the market dismisses, for the most part, are activities that are easy to replicate and produce a small amount of value. Well, social media use is the epitome of an easy-to-replicate activity that does not directly produce a lot of value. It's something that any 16-year-old with a smartphone can do. By definition, the market is not going to give a lot of value to those behaviors. It's instead going to reward the deep, concentrated work required to build real skills and to apply those skills to produce things like a craftsman that are rare and that are valuable. To put it another way, if you can write an elegant algorithm, if you can 
write a legal brief that can change a case. If you can write a thousand words of prose, that's going to fixate a reader right to the end. If you can look at a sea of ambiguous data and apply statistics and pull out insights that could transform a whole business strategy, if you can do these type of activities which require deep work that produce outcomes that are rare and valuable, people will find you. You will be able to write your own ticket. You will be able to build the foundation of a very meaningful and successful professional life regardless of how many Instagram followers you have. So this is the third common objection I hear when I suggest to people that they quit social media. And in some sense, I think it might be one of the most important. So this objection goes as follows. Cal, maybe I agree with you. Maybe you're right. It's not a fundamental technology. Maybe using social media is not at the core of my professional success. But you know what? It's harmless. I have some fun on it. Weird Twitter is funny. I don't even really use it that much. I'm a first adopter. It's just kind of interesting to try it out. And, and maybe I might miss out on something if I don't use it. What's the harm? So again, I look back and I say, this objection also is nonsense. In this case, what it misses is what I think is a very important reality that we need to talk about more frankly, which is that social media brings with it multiple well-documented significant harms. And we actually have to confront these harms head on when trying to make decisions about whether or not we embrace this technology and let it into our lives. So one of these harms that we know this technology brings has to do with your professional success. So I just argued before that the ability to focus intensely to produce things that are rare and valuable, to hone skills that the marketplace values, that this is what's going to matter in our economy. But right before that, I argued that social media tools are designed to be addictive. The actual design desired use case of these tools is that you fragment your attention as much as possible throughout your waking hours. That's how these tools are designed to use. Well, we have a growing amount of research which tells us that if you spend large portions of your day in a state of fragmented attention, so large portions of your day where you're constantly breaking up your attention, take a quick glance, do a just check, let me just quickly look at Instagram, that this can permanently reduce your capacity for concentration. In other words, you could permanently reduce your capacity to do exactly the type of deep effort that we're finding to be more and more necessary in an increasingly competitive economy. So social media use is not harmless. It can actually have a significant negative impact on your ability to thrive in the economy. I am especially worried about this when we look at the younger generation coming up, which is the most saturated in this technology. If you lose your ability to sustain concentration, you're going to become less and less relevant to this economy. There's also psychological harms that are well documented that social media brings that we do need to address. So we know from the research literature that the more you use social media, the more likely you are to feel lonely or isolated. We know that the constant exposure to your friends' carefully curated positive portrayals of their life can leave you to feel inadequate and can increase rates of depression. And something I think we're going to be hearing more about in the near future is that there's a fundamental mismatch between the way our brains are wired and this behavior of exposing yourself to stimuli with intermittent rewards throughout all of your waking hours. So it's one thing to spend a couple hours at the slot machine in Las Vegas, but if you bring a slot machine with you and you pull that handle all day long from when you wake up to when you go to bed, we're not wired from it. It short circuits the brain and we're starting to find that it has actual cognitive consequences, one of them being this sort of pervasive background hum of anxiety. Now the canary in the coal mine for this issue is actually college campuses. If you talk to mental health experts on college campuses, they'll tell you 
along with the rise of ubiquitous smartphone use and social media use among the students on the campus came an explosion of anxiety-related disorders on those campuses. So that's the canary in the coal mine. This type of behavior is a mismatch for our brain wiring. It can make you feel miserable. So there's real cost to social media use, which means when you're trying to decide, should I use this or not, saying it's harmless is not enough. You actually have to identify a significantly positive, clear benefit that can outweigh these potential completely non-trivial harms. So people often ask, okay, but what is life like without social media? That can actually be a little bit scary to think about. What I've found from people I know who've gone through this process, there can be a few weeks that are difficult. It actually is like a true detox process. The first two weeks can be uncomfortable. You feel a little bit anxious. You feel like you're missing a limb. But after that, things settle down. And actually, life after social media can be quite positive. There's two things I can report back to you from the world of no social media use. First, it can be quite productive. Be quite productive. So I'm a professor at a research institution. I've written five books. I rarely work past 5 p.m. on the weekday. Part of the way I'm trying to able to pull that off is because it turns out if you treat your attention with respect, so you don't fragment it, you allow it to stay whole, you, you preserve your ability to concentrate, when it comes time to work, you can actually do one thing after another and do it with intensity. And intensity can be traded for time. It's surprising how much you can get done in an eight-hour day if you're able to give each thing intense concentration after another. Something else I can report back from life without social media is that outside of work, things can be quite peaceful. So I often joke I'd be very comfortable being a 1930s farmer because if you look at my leisure time, I read newspaper while the sun comes up. I listen to baseball on the radio. I, honest to God, sit in a leather chair and read hardcover books at night after my kids go to bed. It sounds old-fashioned, but I'll tell you, they were on to something back then. It's actually a restorative, very peaceful way to actually spend your time out of work. You don't have the constant hum of stimuli and the background hum of anxiety that comes along with that. So life without social media is really not so bad. So we pulled together these threads, and you see my full argument for why I think not everyone, but certainly much more people than right now use social media. Much more people should not be using social media. And that's because we can first, to summarize, discard with the main concerns that somehow it's a fundamental technology you have to use. Nonsense. It's a slot machine in your phone. We can discard with this notion that you're not going to get a job if you don't use social media. Nonsense. Anything a 16-year-old with a smartphone can do is not going to be what the market rewards. And then I emphasize the point that there's real harms with it. So it's not just harmless. You really would have to have a significant benefit before you would actually say this trade-off is worth it. And finally, I noted that life without social media, there's real positives associated with it. So I'm hoping that when many of you actually go through this same calculus, you'll at least consider the perspective I'm making right now, which is many more people would be much better off if they didn't use this technology. Now, of course, some of you might disagree. Some of you might have scathing but accurate critiques of me and my points. And of course, I welcome all negative feedback. I just ask that you direct your comments towards Twitter. Thank you. <laughs>